Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So um, I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago that I, I wasn't going to be here last week because um, I was uh, going to Hawaii. Uh, mainly to um, to visit with uh, Ramdas and also to um, as it turns out to uh, finish up what I thought was I thought was finished with this book project but uh, it it's not was not finished and uh, <clears throat> so I was uh, working uh, a lot <clears throat> at the uh, on the week that I was there I went with Jane and uh, Adam, my son, 22-year-old son, who's been on Kauai for the last, uh, since January, doing this intensive course, which he just graduated from last yesterday. He was so happy. Um, came over and, uh, and joined us for the last few days. <clears throat> uh Adam was in this uh, six-month intensive bodywork training, structural integration, rolfing, um, physical, psychological uh, healing arts. Really good stuff. <clears throat> so it was, you know, I was looking forward to a week in Maui when I first made the made the plans, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to be finished with the book and I'm just going to really relax and have a great time and visit my beloved uh, teacher, mentor, inspiration, Ramdas. But um, it didn't work out that way. I, and I came in, um, I'd been having this uh, uh, rash that, that just fully bloomed on my way over and I stopped as soon as we got off the plane, I stopped at Kaiser, which was right near the airport, fortunately, and saw this doctor, and he said, oh, you could use a little bit of medicine, okay? And uh, so the first few days, you know, was this intense itching and doing uh, and working really hard. It's not easy to be creative while you're itching a lot. <clears throat> but, you know, that, that was... That was the way it was, and then I, what I would go um, snorkeling every morning. That was the thing that I that I uh, <clears throat> gave myself. The doctor said it was okay. Oh, he said, as as I got off the plane, he said, "Well, I don't know if you'll be able to handle the um, um, the treatment." I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, with this medication, you can't uh, you can't drink alcohol, you know." And, and he'd never heard of somebody coming to Hawaii for a week. <laughs> And not drinking, and you know, I thought, well, maybe I'd have a mai tai once or, or so. But you know, I said, oh, that's okay. I can let go. He said, really? You can do it? <laughs> okay. Well, here then. Here's the medicine. It'll probably do it. But I did go snorkeling. Um, this is leading up to a point. I, there is a point to all this. I just want you to know. I'm not just talking about my holiday uh, in Maui for no reason. There is a reason to this. So I went snorkeling and. Um, uh, <clears throat> just as the rash started to um, subside a bit on like the third or fourth day, um, I uh, went in and uh, I got this water in my ear that wouldn't 
go out. And the last three days, as it turns out, I, I went to the doctor when I came back, and I said, you know, it's still in there like five, four or five days later. I, what, you know, you ever kind of do this like for, oh, ten hours a day? You know? <laughs> and, and the doctor, uh, the, actually the doctor here and the, the nurse practitioner was fantastic, Kaiser. She was the, she was the, the expert. And she... Um, she sucked out this huge piece of wax that had gotten impacted in there. It sometimes happens. And um, <clears throat> so the water was underneath the wax, right? And then she pulls that out and she said, wow, that's got, you had a fair amount in there. And I said, uh, gee, I, uh, the doctor had put drops in one ear. I said, I wish he would have done it. I wonder if there was anything in the other ear. She said, oh, well, I'll take a look. And sure enough, there was this, it hadn't, closed off, but there was a huge gob of wax, so I've been hearing a whole lot better, you know, <laughs> since then. Um, and, uh, but the, 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 uh, the thing that I'm leading up to, oh my God, I've been talking already, <laughs> I've got like three pages of notes uh, here, was um, when I, you know, I was doing okay, you know, but kind of like, oh, here's my Maui vacation, I've got an, you know, an intense itching and I'm working all day and I now I can't hear and uh, and I went to, then we went to see Ramdas we we went twice and it was it was great uh, if you don't know Ramdas he wrote this book be here now that changed my life and a whole lot of people's lives and um, he's just in such great um, such a great space and we had some, two really fantastic visits and um, I said, well, what's going on with you lately? And he said, uh, I'm um, writing about contentment. And, um, and then he, he talked about, you know, he had a stroke, for those who don't know. He had a stroke in uh, 1997. And from this gift of eloquence and magical communication, his speech has been halting, uh, and he's gotten so much better. It's really amazing. You know, it's, you know he still had something, but he can carry on a really almost normal, uh, at times, uh, paced conversation. Um, and, uh, but his body goes through a whole lot of stuff. So when I first said, how are you? He said, well, that's a big question. He says, uh, my body, not so good. You know, and he He's having problems with his legs, and he's got this, and he's got that. He didn't go into the whole thing, but I heard from his the person who uh, is his attendant, um, who's great, this woman Kathleen, that he goes through a whole lot of stuff with great, great grace. He says, my body, not so good, but my heart, very good. And, uh, and then he's, he talked about the fact that he was writing this book about contentment. And... Um, the more I thought about it, <clears throat> uh, there I was with my little itch and, you know, my, you know, oh, I have to write here on Maui and I only get to snorkel once a day. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, in this paradise, and here he is just so gracefully, so beautifully dealing with what he goes through. And it was very moving. Um, and, uh, 
And uh, so I've been exploring it a lot these last few days. It also happens to be the, um, the theme for this Awakening Joy course that, I'm, that I teach. It's a 10-month course, and the theme this month is letting go, the joy of letting go, which is really about contentment. So I've been talking about it twice uh, this week. So this is a, a variation, and this is for the Dharma crowd, um, about a deepening sense of contentment. I, I explored mostly letting go in the in the joy course, uh, but contentment is a whole other level of letting go. And I <coughs> want to start by mm, start now that I've been talking for about ten fifteen minutes. Uh, I want to uh, share with you a poem um, from a book that uh, my friend Mark on on Maui. Uh, we met my friend Mark and. Uh, We went to his gorgeous place, and he said, here, check this book out. Uh, I have an extra copy, and it's a a book of poetry and sayings by Adi Ashanti um, called My Secret of Silence, and this is the poem that that really caught me. It's called Wake Up. So you have tasted that drug called a spiritual experience, And now you want more. Like any good junkie, you'll give anything for your drug. And most likely, you have. When you do not have your drug, you feel the sting of withdrawal from the pit of your stomach to the racing anxious thoughts in your head. How much would you give to have another hit of transcendence? course through your entire being, bringing with it such sweet euphoria and an ever-deepening addiction. If God would only mainline non-ending transcendence into your veins, you would never suffer withdrawal. This is the hidden hope of all spiritual junkies. Here is the truth. The truth is is not an experience or an idea. The truth is that you have been dreaming. Wake up. There is no one to be enlightened or unenlightened. How many have tasted that drug called a spiritual experience? I'm just wondering. It's cool, isn't it? It's very cool. Yeah. Ooh, that was so good. Man, you wouldn't believe this sitting I had. It was so perfect. Ah, clear, sweet, loving. My heart was so loving. I couldn't believe I could love that much. God, I wish I could love like that again. And there we are, addicted to something so seemingly profound and noble and still addicted anyway. Still another level of attachment. I had this experience on my first retreat uh, in 1974. Um, It was the fall of 74, right after I had my mind blown the, that summer at Naropa. And um, 
had this one experience where, for the first time, it didn't matter if the bell ever rang. Wow. I was breathing in. The universe was breathing out. I was breathing out. The universe was breathing in. And it just went on and on like that. Oh, it was so good. The bell rang. I actually stayed there for a while. And I forget if it was lunch or tea time or something like that that seemed very important for me to have. And um, next time I sat, yeah, ooh, come on, baby. <laughs> come on, I can feel you. Oh, it's, it was so cool. I think I finally got this stuff. And... Um, wasn't there. <laughs> it wasn't there, and uh, I did everything I could for the next few days to get that back, until finally I went for an interview with uh, Joseph Goldstein, and I said, um, look, I really got it. I really had it, and somehow... I lost it, and I really want it back. <laughs> How do I do that? And he then shared a story that impressed me very deeply uh, about his own practice, where for one period in his practice when he was sitting in, uh, in Bodhgaya, he was practicing there for about seven years, uh, and... Um, he hit into this cycle where every time he sat, his mind was clear and radiant and his body was like filled with light. And this went on for weeks, even actually, I think, as I recall, a couple of months. And then he w went back to the States. He had to take care of some stuff and visit his family and... Um, knowing that he was going to come back and practice again. And he got a little bit, he kind of, you know, let his practice slide a little back home. And besides, when you're going home, it's very different than being on intensive retreat. When he came back to, um, to practice in, uh, in Bodh Gaya, he remembered very well where he had been in those earlier, in that earlier uh, period. And he sat down and instead of being clear and bright, he said his, like his mind was mud and his body felt like twisted steel. Those are the words that he used. And then he looked at me and he said, um, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. He actually writes about this in uh, Insight Meditation, I think. And then he leaned forward, I'll never forget this, with great compassion, and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. Just be with things as they are. I said, oh, okay. Thank you. And for the, somehow it, it sunk in, the, 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 the power of what he was saying, that uh, the meditation is just letting things be as they are, which 
carried me through that retreat. But still, there have been times when I have forgotten, when I've had the next big, very cool event and experience. You know, I remember when first time I could feel thoughts about to come. I thought, wow, holy cow, this is really meditation. And I was going through, I go through this yo-yo in practice. Oh, this is it. It's so cool. It's so concentrated. And then I get, try to grasp and I get really caught and I get really exhausted and then I give up. And then as soon as I give up, I'd get clear again and it was like this yo-yo and I remember going to Joseph one time and saying I think I'm going to need to see you soon because I'm starting to get get clear and bright again he said and it was like I was afraid I was going to go through this yo-yo and just get and really lose it and it was getting so distressing those kinds of experiences which if you've done retreats or even if you haven't done retreats you've probably had those experiences in your life where just everything fell into place and things were just so and life was supporting you so beautifully and you didn't have to fight and somehow you let go of fighting and it was all just perfect and you thought wow I finally got my life together you know not realizing and remembering that everything changes. Those kinds of experiences have their value, as seductive as they might be, and saying, oh, yeah, and we get caught in attachment. I don't want to dismiss those. They are inspiring. They give us faith. They can even be a a doorway to incline the mind just by remembering what it was like. I'm a great believer when somebody has had a very moving, profound experience that there's a a delicate balance, not in the grasping of it or for it, but just in the recalling of it and remembering what that was like. If you're not looking for bells and whistles and just remembering how your heart was touched... That in itself opens you up to that other dimension, or at least it can. Not with any kind of grasping. There can't be a grasping. It's more like a a remembering, recalling, inviting, feeling blessed, and allowing for whatever is there. So I don't want to say that there's no value in them. There's tremendous value, you know, if you've been graced by a, a profound experience, whether in meditation or out. But this tantalizing, particularly with spiritual practice, looking for something else uh, can be so um, frustrating and painful. And I want to remind you, we did the Thursday Patriarch uh, recently. His words, to live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult, but those with limited views are fearful and irresolute. The faster they hurry, the slower they go. And clinging, attachment cannot be limited. Even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. This hidden promise that the mind creates 
we get seduced by our imagination. And this isn't only about meditation, as I said. It can be about anything, about just around the corner. I know what I'm looking for is there, or I hope it's there. And we get seduced by our imagination, by our our good visions. It's going to be so good when finally everything clears up. Or we get seduced by our fearful imagination. It's going to be so bad if this happens. And each of those takes us out of the fullness of this moment. Particularly if you are relatively new to practice, there is what's called the honeymoon period, where you just get turned on to consciousness and seeing things in a new way. And it's it's so inspiring. I remember that that first first year or two when I found what I was looking for, and it was just really, oh man, the Dharma! I just want to bathe in the Dharma. I just want to swim in the Dharma. I just want to. I I never want to leave this grace of having found something so inspiring that I I really believe in. And that honeymoon period is extraordinarily delicious because you have this this faith that's not just about something possibly happening, but about that you can possibly do this, that there's something here for you. And then almost everybody, after a while, goes through um, a plateau where that curve has stopped going this way and is more this way. And you see the difference, or you feel the difference, and then the more frustrated you get, it seems to go this way, go down. And you're wondering where you went wrong. This spiritual journey is... an ongoing um, experience of being humbled again and again and again. And being humbled is a good thing. It's okay if you don't feel that you're doing something wrong. It's just realizing you are not in control of this trip. It's not your job to make it the perfect trip. It's your job to be here for the ride and to just keep on showing up. Somebody asked um, uh, Mother Teresa, you know, they said, uh, they, were, they were talking about how difficult relationships were uh, for them. And, and they said, well, you know, you don't, ha- you don't have to go through this because, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not in a relationship. And she said, oh, yes, I am, you know, and she held up the... A ring of, uh, of of being married to Christ. She said, I'm, I'm married, and he can be a very, very difficult partner. You know, 
because she'd be humbled again and again. Actually, in, in recent times, she there's this book about the, the dark night that she had, all kinds of doubts over, over the years. That's just come out in the last few years. When the honeymoon is over, and it's, this, it's not so different when, you know, the honeymoon is over in, in a relationship. You ever meet the perfect partner? Oh, I know. My goodness, I finally found the person I was looking for. You know, I do a lot of weddings. I love doing weddings, performing weddings, you know. And just, uh, and uh, I've mentioned this before, Sylvia Borstein gave me very good advice when I got married that I always pass on. And that's uh, uh, when she said to me, don't worry, dear, it's the first 15 years that are the hardest, you know. Because when the, the dopamine is going and everything is cooking and you just, you know, know you have found the love of your life, you know, everything is beautiful. But then... Uh, when you stop being dazzled by the love that you have for someone and you come back to earth and you see that this person is just another human being with their own quirks and idiosyncrasies and you start noticing them a bit more and more. Oh, yeah, gosh, I didn't see that. Oh. Yeah, and at times that's all you see and you forgot what the big deal was when you first met them. It's a, it's a, a very important part of the process when that honeymoon is over because you're grieving the idealization that you had of this perfect person. And if you keep on seeing that that's part of the relationship and you let go of that person meeting all your imagined ideals and uh, just learn to love them for who they are. And that, that's really what the dopamine gets you to that point where you're willing to do that. And then the idea is to get to love them for who they are and not who your imagined perfection is. Then, um, that's when you really ripen into maturity of a, of a deeper kind of love. And you do it just because it feels good to love, not because you're going to get your needs met, because that person has somehow been able to open that, that love in your heart. So it's the same way with, with the Dharma, giving up our idealized notions of what it could be like letting go of how good it is, how good I'm going to feel when. When I asked Ramdas about contentment, I said, well, what have you found? You know, Because uh, here I am, actually I was looking for some, you know, he's been writing this book, maybe I could get the pith, the pith teachings, you know. What have you found? And uh, he said, I can tell you in one sentence. Got your attention? Then <laughs> yeah. he said, plumb the depths of this moment. Plumb the depths of this moment. And as I've 
played around with those words this last week, it just keeps on taking me to a deeper and deeper place of all rightness, of completion. I actually uh, heard another perfect teaching around this from my son, Adam, who had, uh, he came over and, um, like I said, he met Ramdas because he had a very profound experience, and I think uh, maybe I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, with Neem Karoli Baba, this uh, Ramdas's guru and person who's inspired me, and he was walking this labyrinth. He was out doing a vision quest, and there was a labyrinth out in nature, and he walked the labyrinth slowly, and he stopped and when he got to the center and he meditated and he had this very profound experience of Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji as he's sometimes called, um, in his heart and going through this, he said it was like Maharaji installed himself in his heart and as a hardware. And the experience that it, it came out with, he summed up in two words, abundant enoughness. I've been playing around with those two teachings, and when he when he shared it, I said, "Adam, tell tell Ramdas about your experience with, with uh, Maharaji." And when Ramdas heard "abundant enoughness," he said, "Hmm, that's good. That's good." They're both pointing to the same thing: that this moment is full and complete if we can really sink our hearts into it, fully take it in, see that whatever is here for us, whether it's beautiful or scary or confusing or delightful, it's a moment of life that is a gift to us. Abundant enoughness, plumbing the depths of this moment. Um, Another part of this talk that I want to share around contentment because I want to, there's both there's a lot of wisdom in it and I want you to know about this new book that's that's come out is uh, from Anam uh, Rinpoche, Anam Tupton Rinpoche's book. It's just uh, come out a new edition called No Self, No Problem. It's really good. And I wanted to share with you um, He's been here and he's given talks. He gives, uh, he has a sangha uh, every Sunday morning at Point Richmond. If you look on Dharmata Foundation, that's Dharma with a T-A at the end of it. Uh, uh, Anam Rinpoche gives the talks. And I wanted to share a little bit about what he says about contentment. First he says, he makes the point, and I, I've made this too, and then I'll share a little bit of what he actually says, is that we all want to be happy. You know, we might think, oh, yes, uh, I, I don't, I just want, I want true awakening. I want deep enlightenment. But he said, let's be real. We all want to be happy. That's why you want enlightenment. You know, you can't kind of pretend I don't want to be happy. Whatever it is that's, 
that's moving you. It's this movement towards more well-being and wholeness. There's something in us, I say this in the joy course a lot, there's something in us that is rooting for our happiness. It's been there all along, and it's a really wonderful aspect of our being. I, I would say it's our true nature, you know, that is really... When you say, I want to be happy, you want to be happy? Yeah, I bet you want to be happy, right? Anybody not want to be happy? If you don't, that's your way of not being, of, of being happy. Yeah. No, I don't want to be happy. I'm somebody who doesn't want to be happy. Yeah. Okay, whatever turns you on, right? But basically, we all do really want to be happy, right? And that's a very beautiful thing. It's a movement of the heart that's saying, yes, I want inner peace. I want well-being. And he says, to really honor that, don't pretend it's not there, but see where true happiness lies. And he says that it, it lies in contentment. The inner state where attachment or, and fear are both absent. It's not acquiring anything, but really letting go of needing anything. And I want to share with you uh, a beautiful analogy he has. He says, if we want to create space in a room, we begin by bringing in a lot of things from outside the room. Oh, if we begin, sorry, let me get it again. If we want to create space in a room and we begin by bringing in a lot of things from outside the room, it will not work out. The room will become stuffed with junk So how are we going to create space? We should begin by just getting rid of things. We simply get rid of all the junk. Get rid of all the things that are not necessary. In the same way, to bring about contentment, we need a consciousness that is like creating space. That's what we really crave. We want space in our minds, right? It's not about having more, accumulating more. Rather, it's about letting go of this and that. When we let go of everything, we see that the space we wanted to create is already there. In the same way, inner contentment is already there, and that is true happiness. There is no enlightenment other than that. Isn't that interesting? We, we want all this space, and the space has been there all the time if we can just get rid of the things that are cluttering up the mind. Or you can't try too hard to get rid of them, but to allow them to just be as they are without creating some problems. And that means not to give up everything, but give up our attachment to everything. That's, that's what the game is about. We can do without a lot more than we realize. We did last year, or maybe a year and a half ago, we did the, the five reflections you know, that the Buddha said every day to reflect on. Uh, this body will become old, it will age, it will die. Everything near and dear to me will be separated from me. And you are the heir. I am the heir to my karma. But look at that one. Besides our body doing things that we wish it didn't, 
everything near and dear to you, everything and everyone near and dear to you will be separated from you. You think, my God, how can I, how could I handle that? This person, that identity, this body that serves me the way I want it right now. But human beings are amazingly resilient. They're amazingly adaptable. Just imagine the people closest to you, the people that you care about the most. Recently, uh, a, a number of people I know have are facing some very serious illnesses, and it, it's been you know uh, it's been kind of interesting you know just one after another people that I really care about. Um, Maybe it happens all the time, but sometimes it comes, you know, in, in waves. And each one is like, oh, my goodness. You know, they've had to look at their own possibilities and the people around them looking at their being separated from them. Imagine the people closest to us. And if we lose them, or if we lose our own body, if you believe in things happening, continuing after that, life or consciousness or the mystery will still carry on. And you will survive on one level or another. I often think about it when I was a, a little kid. You know, imagine losing your best friend when you were in the sixth grade. You know, the thought of losing your best friend or not being best friends for life would have seemed just unbearable. How many best friends have you had in your life? Probably not that many are still best friends with their sixth grade best friend. Maybe some are. But each person who's gone, there's been somebody else and there have been other people that have filled your life. And even the people, you know, when I think of some people close to me that I've lost, they're still inside of me. I haven't really lost them. So the scary part, the fear of losing the most precious thing, that's where contentment, the practice of contentment, the rubber meets the road. Can I do without that? Can I do without this body working the way I want it to? Can I do without this person being in my life? And uh, the extraordinary thing, as Ram Dass showed, is it's possible. It's really possible. What we're really doing is, uh, is really a practice 
in contentment, it's a practice not only for awakening, it's a practice for for dying as well. Because in the end, you are going to need to let it all go, aren't you? Every one of us. All those things, I love the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the, 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 the reading that I sometimes share with people who are close to death, you know, let go, you know. All the, all the visions you will have as you leave are just visions. They will all, don't be seduced by them. Don't hold on to anything. Merge into your true nature. Trust it. Merge with it. At the end, we're going to let it all go. And if you believe in this process, we've been doing it over and over and over so many times that the Buddha said, higher than the highest mountain, the bones of the rebirths that we've gone through. And each time we think, oh no, I don't think I can do that. And we've done it over and over and over. So contentment, the question is, What's more important when you get down to it? Is it the things or the things that are dear to us or liberation? When you're there at the end of your life and you have to let everything go, is it possible to have a mind or a heart that says, okay, this is part of the trip. I can let this go too. And the more we, we practice, the, the beautiful thing is the more we practice contentment with things as they are, even as things are leaving us, then we feel that abundant enoughness all the time. That's the, that's the paradox. So here's a practice that Anam has for us that I invite. He says to start with just a little thing. You know, it's too much to let go of everything in your life all at once, perhaps. But I'll share this practice. My recommendation as a method of bringing about the wisdom of non-attachment and deep contentment is to carefully examine our lifestyle and habits. Go through all of our usual activities and we will find a lot of habitual behavior that we use as a way of shielding ourselves from facing ourselves. Once we are able to pinpoint a specific habit, then we have to be very serious, deadly serious, if we want to really practice this capacity of letting go. We have, to repra- we have to practice refraining from that specific habit, whether it's watching too much TV, reading too much, chatting too much, drinking alcohol too much, or smoking cigarettes. Just pick one thing, he says, just as an experiment. Just pick one thing that you're holding on to, one personal habit that you really cling to as a kind of refuge, 
and just as an experiment, try not to indulge in that habit. This is good to do, even if we cannot give it up completely. Don't worry about being perfect. You're doing it as a practice, as a kind of... exploration of the capacity to do without. Because the more that you can do that, little and little, little by little, it's like seeing you have that capacity. Oh yeah, I survived that. And you see that the real contentment is not about things or conditions. It's about seeing what's here all along, that space inside, that love inside, that goodness inside, that is not dependent on externals. That's why the Buddha said to keep on letting go and letting go and letting go. And what you'll see is something much vaster than all the things out there that, that you thought would bring you happiness. It's right here inside. Plumbing the depths of this moment and seeing that we can wake up to it just as it is, that is the prescription that the Buddha gave. Abundant enoughness. So we have some time. We can just maybe hear any comments, any questions, any exploration with this topic. Uh, the foot fell asleep. I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your advice on the attachment. We're moving next week to to Belgium, so we're leaving our whole life here. We're leaving everything here, and we're packing now. And it's like so real for me that it's like it's. I mean, now you see to what you're attached to. Like if you're just living your life, you don't realize. That you're attached, what you're attached to, and now that we have to give up everything, it's like, oh, I'm attached to this or this person. It's really interesting to see, and it's been a really wild ride. So, <laughs> what are you learning? What are you? How's it going? Or what are the lessons? It's from? very intense. I'm really. It's a role. It's really emotional roller coaster for me, and um, it's just keeping. I mean, remembering having the faith in yourself that you're going to be fine without all that. And it's just jumping in the deep and I don't know what's going to be and just hoping that we're just going to swim and be fine. And so, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and and what you're you're saying is really important. It's not like you just say, oh, yeah, it's cool. You go through the roller coaster and that's part of it too. It's not like... Oh yes, I can I can let go of this. That's part of the process of letting go to just honor the ups and downs and the and the the thoughts that come and the confusion and just know somewhere deep down that you'll be okay. You know, if that's if that's the only thing just one little sliver of faith that everything in your life has led you up to this moment and you're you've been okay, it will keep on you'll be okay. 
somewhere in there you'll be okay. And a whole new world opens up to you there. That's the great thing about impermanence. You know, people think, oh, it's such a, such a, a depressing kind of thing sometimes. I'm going to lose this, I'm going to lose that. But the other side of impermanence is infinite creativity. There's always something new. Life doesn't just stop and say, okay, that's it. It's just keeping on unfolding for you. So good luck with your, Thank you. your move. What, tell me your name again. Is Sarah. It? Sarah. Oh. Hope it's a really good move. And when you come back, let's, let's hear how it goes. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Real close to you. What came to my to mind so strongly was that uh, I was divorced in '77, and my youngest son was 13. Mm, a little bit closer to your lips, yeah. My youngest yeah, son was 14, and he was going to he was going to come and stay with me, and I bought a house that he he liked, and you know not what I liked so much, but what he liked, and then the next summer he went to visit his father, and for the summer. And um, I really missed him, and he called me, and he said, Mom, I want to stay with Dad. And I thought I would die. I cried, and, I <laughs> and then I realized that he had, but then was 14 years old. He had a right to be wherever he wanted to be, and I let go. And the next month, he called me and said, <laughs> Mom, would it be okay if I'd come back? <laughs> and it was... <laughs> so that's the kind of letting go I like. <laughs> that, that's the secret. You let go and, you, and often you get it all. Although you can't let go in order to get it all. It knows if you're doing that. Oh. Yeah. You can't trick it. There's something about... It's the freedom of the, re- uh, uh, the willingness to release that lightens the, the burden of that, that grasping. And that just seems to create space for either people to move into that or for life to, to fill it up just by your willingness to create all that space. Mm, that's great. Well, and the fact that I loved him so much mm-hmm. that I had to willingly let him do what he needed to do. I, he, he, and we have, he's my, we're, we're very, very bonded because he came back. He was the only child I had that he actually, I was the, you know, we were the only people in the house. So we're very, very close. And he is such a support to me now. Mm-hmm. And such a, whenever you talk about, think of somebody who loves you and who you love, he, it's always his face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've sort of jokingly said that he is the face of God to me. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful to love somebody so much that you, you're more, it's their happiness is more important than what you can get from them. That's real love. It's 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 uh, it's another kind of sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy where you're just, but the sympathetic joy is usually a. Uh, a, a joyful experience where you're just cheering somebody on. But, but what Carol is saying is that she loved him so much 
that her happiness even was was painful for her for a while but it was it went deeper than than the suffering or the pain because of her caring okay well it's time to close so uh, let's just uh, do a short loving kindness and uh just as you sit here one more time try on that feeling of abundant enoughness that this moment is complete and send some kind thoughts to yourself for being willing to explore the deepest truths. May I see through any wantings, any attachments, and be free. May I feel all the love inside and goodness inside and share my love well. May I wake up to my true nature. And may all beings see through their wantings, confusions, and no real contentment. May all feel their goodness and share their love. May all wake up to their true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. Okay, thank you very much. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.